Uh, let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 18 as we get going here this morning. Genesis chapter 18. Um, Justin's out of town, like I said. Ben is uh, feeding homeless people this morning somewhere in Tillman's Corner. Uh, he said something about an open field somewhere, and I was like, well, that sounds sketchy, but whatever. So uh, they're feeding some uh, homeless people out there. Justin is out of town taking a break, getting rest, and uh, so here you are, third string. You're welcome, all right? Yeah, th- well, easy, Doug. So, All right, Genesis chapter 18, this is going to be uh, somewhat, I'll say it this way, I guess I don't even know why I'm telling you this because you wouldn't know unless I tell, uh, told you, uh, but this is somewhat of an odd message for me, the way it was prepared. It's like every angle I kept trying to go just kept getting blocked, 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 and I kept going back here. Angela came um, into the kitchen, and I was getting some things ready, and I told her, I said, I'm slightly freaking out here. She's like, what's wrong? I said, I got like two and a half hours to go. I have no clue what's going on here. I said, I have no clue what I'm going to talk about, which is very odd for me. If you know me, I know what, was, I know what I'm going to do like a week prior. You know what I mean? So I'm like two hours down. I knew what I kind of wanted to talk about. And I just kept trying to move things around here and there, and I don't know what it was. I've only had that happen to me two or three times in my life, and my brain was, I'll say it's the brain, maybe my brain, maybe it was the Lord just saying no, 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 no. And he knows the only way that I'm going to listen if he absolutely shuts the door, turns the vault closed, puts in a code that I don't know, concretes it up, and just totally blocks it off in every feasible way. So here we are in Genesis chapter number 18, and I want to talk to you uh, this morning. We're going to go to a couple of different portions of Scripture, Romans chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as well, to kind of tie these two things together. Uh, But what I want to talk to you about this this morning is the justice of God in grace. And this is something I talked to my mom about it earlier this week, but uh, I I had a dream, and uh, I woke up, and this portion of Scripture was the first thing on my mind, particularly one uh, section of the verse. And so I want to read, kind of give you some context. We're going to read quite a few verses this morning. My thought process behind reading a lot of Bible verses is at least if I mess up what I'm trying to say, you at least heard the Bible read out loud at church, you know. So there's some kind of safety net there. So at the end of the day, you can't go home and say, say, I heard nothing but heresy because you actually heard somebody read the Bible, so you got that part, right? What's that? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right, and I grew up Baptist, so we have to read big portions of Scripture before we preach. This is the way that it works, you know, so you'll just have to forgive me. All right, Mike, that was for you. All right, so Genesis chapter number 18, the context is Abraham just had, let me just back up and say this, Abraham just had some visitors. Uh, These visitors were in the form of angels, but it's what we refer to in the Old Testament as a theophany. It is a pre-incarnate representation of Christ. Uh, At least that's my opinion about this story. They show up, and uh, he tells Abraham, you're going to have a son in your old age, and that's the story, the part where, remember, Sarah laughs. Uh, And God says, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah laughs. She's like, oh, I didn't laugh, because you don't laugh at God, right? You know? And uh, so God does have a sense of humor, so much so that I guess she kind of laughed at it, you know? And so the story moves on, and uh, they're, they're eating food and whatnot and fellowshipping together. And in Verse number 16 of chapter 18, the mood kind of changes here. They got some good news, now they're about to get some bad news, uh, if we can put it that way. Uh, And uh, he's going to talk about that infamous story in the Old Covenant of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what's very, uh, what's unknown a lot about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that the cities that God dealt with there, there were more than just two. There were actually a number of cities in a plain 
uh, that were surrounding each other. They were kind of like, they were real close together. And God ended up judging all the cities in that area, not just Sodom and not just Gomorrah. He, spelled, he spared a city called Zoar uh, for one reason, and that's because Abraham's nephew Lot, he allowed him to leave Sodom and go into Zoar, and because Lot was a righteous man, God didn't destroy that city just like he promised Abraham they would not do. And so the context here is what God is revealing to Abraham, the upcoming plan, what he's going to do. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this story or event. I don't really like, I shouldn't call it a story because it did happen. Uh, one of the reasons we know that this actually did happen is because Jesus references it in the book of Matthew again while he's speaking to the Pharisees. Do you remember that? He's talking about their self-righteousness, and he says, remember Lot's wife. Uh, so why would G Jesus refer to it as an event that did take place? And so let's just read what's going on here. I've spoken enough about it. Let's just see what the Bible's got to say about it. In verse number 16, it says, Then the men arose and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice. Now there's that word. We're not going to see that word a lot, but we're going to see the concept spoken of quite a bit as we move through here. So that Abraham would do righteousness and justice, that the Lord might bring upon Abraham all that he's spoken. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done all together that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from Abraham, excuse me, then the, man, the men towards, turned towards Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. And I, I really like that phrase in that moment. You know, Abraham didn't do anything. He just stayed right there. That's not easy. And the reason why that's kind of important to take into consideration because Abraham knows something about Sodom, doesn't he? He knows that his nephew's in Sodom. He knows that, his, uh, son, that Lot's daughters and Lot's son-in-laws, they're all there. His extended family is in Sodom. And God's just said, I'm going to go down there and check this place out to see if it's really like what I've heard it is. Now, of course, God knew, but God relates to us on terms that we can understand. And so, down in verse number 21, or verse 22, he says, Then the men turned away from there, went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Now, that's a question, not an accusation. But what Abraham's doing here is he's, to be quite honest with you, setting God up a little bit. He's trying to. He's saying, oh, wait a minute, I know what's going on down there. Are you going to go down to Sodom and you're going to take everybody out? He's just checking to see what's going on, you know. Your kids do this to you all the time. You know what I mean? They, they'll come up to you like maybe at dinner and they'll, they'll walk in there and they'll be like, hey, uh, we're not uh, having peas tonight, are we? Okay, thank God, you know, and when you, they say no and then they're done. That's what's happening here. And so he says uh, in verse 23, he says, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then he says, Suppose there were 50 righteous within this city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do no such thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. 
Far be it from you. And notice what he says, and that's where we're going to stop, and we're going to kind of launch off into some different ways of thinking. Abraham asked God a question. Um, He says, far be it from you. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Will the judge of all the earth do right? If there's one tension, if there's, there's one thing that you've ever heard a child say to you, it's the phrase, that's not fair. You've heard that. Matter of fact, you've said it. I've probably said it. I've said it as an adult, I'm sure. Mom, don't answer that question. But or you don't even have to give any commentary. We've, we've all said that. It's that that's not fair. And what is our response to people when we look at them and we say, that's not fair? What do we always say? Like, there's never truer words have been spoken, Right? Life is not fair. Life also isn't always just. God has not set life up to be just. You know why? Because the question that remains is, will the God or the judge of all the earth, will he do right? Not will the earth do right. Not will life do right. Uh, Not will other people do right. But will the judge of all the earth do right? Vengeance is not justice. We think that a lot of times. Vengeance is, you know, God can take vengeance and it be just because God only reacts in righteousness or only involves himself in righteousness. Uh, the, The wrath of man doesn't work the righteousness of God, the Bible tells us. And so when Abraham says this, this is a big question. It is a loaded question, isn't it? Because... And, and think about Abraham, <laughs> just for a minute. Just back your mind up. Abraham's called out of the earth of the Chaldees. His name was Abram back then, right? He takes his wife, Sarai, back then. They come out. The first hint of trouble that they run into, do you remember what Abraham does? He runs into the, uh, the king of Egypt. He's like, oh, that's not my wife. That's my sister. Listen, there's not one modern man that has ever told somebody else that their wife was their sister that lived to tell about it, all right? <laughs> You know, I mean, he was basically what Abraham did was is he took his wife, put her in front of him and used her as a shield so he wouldn't be killed. Well, because, you know, the Bible says that she was fair to look upon, which means in those days, if there was an Instagram, she could be an Instagram model, I guess. I don't know. So Sarah's wife, she was an attractive lady. And Abraham was like, this guy's going to see my wife and he's going to be like, that's it. She's so attractive. I'm going to kill Abraham and take her. So Abraham just tries to dodge that bullet. Not only, now listen, not only did Abraham do that once, drum roll please, he did it twice, all right? Now there's only, I have said to Angela that she is probably one of the most patient people, Angela, my, both of the Angelas I know, particularly my wife and my mother, uh, but my wife is a very patient person because she's with me, all right? So that right there just proves it. She's a very patient person. I don't, I, I don't think I could make it past this is my sister once. I am definitely not making it past this is my sister twice, all right? I will be in a shallow grave somewhere, uh, and, and everybody will just be like, no, that makes sense, you know, that's good. Police will be like, sure, move along, lady, we get it. Not a big deal. Justifiable homicide, totally get it. So here's Abraham. Now get this, here's Abraham. And he is looking at God, and he's saying, you're going to do what's right, aren't you? Now, 
My point being is he doesn't have quite the track record. But neither do we. We don't have the track record to ask either. This is the grace of justice. Because God does what's right by us because of who he is. Not because of who you are. So Abraham, he, he kind of hedges his bets a little bit. And he goes on and he's, he already threw out a number. Now, everybody knows in negotiations, you're not the first person to throw out the number. We all know this. If you've bought a car, you know, don't start tossing around numbers just yet, you know. Abraham says, God, just suppose, suppose, let's just pretend there are 50 people down in Sodom and they're righteous. Will you destroy everybody? Well, Abraham begins to think back and he's like, no, wait a minute, we're talking about Sodom here. Lord, just, let's just say there's 40 people. Let's just be, let's just take it easy. What if there's 40? God said, all right, for 40 people, I'm giving you the Buddy Revised Standard Version now. He says, if there's 40 people, I won't do it. And Abraham's like, ah, what about, you know, don't get mad. What about 30? He's all right, for 30, I won't. Moves it all the way down to 10. Abraham's satisfied with 10 at that point. And the, the end of the, the last verse of the chapter tells us that Abraham returned to his home, and the men went down into Sodom to see what was going on there. He was ha- you know why he was happy with 10? This is my personal opinion. This is Buddy Theological Seminary, so you take up what you want. What would you say, Doug? He knew at least 10. Lot and his family. He knew that nothing else in that city was going to work out outside of Lot and his family. Now get this. Abraham didn't ask God to spare the city just simply because God, uh, Lot was this great dude. Because if you read the story the rest of the way, and we're not going to get into it, uh, yo, he was not, all right? Uh, to say that Lot was sketchy is an understatement, all right? Uh, Lot was actually fairly despicable with some of the things that he pulled. If you didn't read the story, let me just say this. If we were to turn these two chapters into a made-for-TV miniseries on the Hallmark Channel, they wouldn't play it there. They'd have to play it somewhere else, like on HBO. It's rough, some of the things that happen. I mean, I would not let my kids watch a movie of these two chapters. Wouldn't do it. So the men in chapter number 19, I want to set something up because we're not going to end here because God doesn't end here. God ends at the gospel. Christ ends at the gospel here. Or this is going to end at the gospel. In verse number 19, so they go on down there in chapter 19, verse number 1, they walk into the city of Sodom, and the first person they come up on, who is it? Lot. He's seated in the gate, the, the seat of the city, the gate of the city, which uh, some people uh, seem to estimate that that meant he was a man of prominence in Sodom because that's where the rulers of the city would sit. And they would either do business or they would uh, come to judgments and conclusions for the other people of the city. Uh, and that's where the, the important men would sit. And when, now here's a good indication that we know Lot, Lot was a righteous man even though he didn't always behave righteously because when the angel showed up, he immediately noticed who they were. And he got out and he ran to meet them. And the Bible says that he fell at their feet and said, the first thing he said was, please come stay with me tonight. And the angels were like, nah, we're just going to sleep on the street. And Lot was like, no, 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 no. Please, I'm begging you to come and stay with me. I find it very interesting here that God steps into this city in a human form at that point, looks around to, and let's get, let's get this, this idea out there about justice as we're moving along. Justice is not an emotion, something to remember. Vengeance is not an emotion, necessarily. 
These are punitive actions that God takes because He's righteous. See, we add our emotions into it a lot when it comes to this stuff. God's not up there looking at what's going on with Sodom, walking in with a baseball bat like some episode of, uh, you know, The Walking Dead, looking to see who he's going to take out next. That's not what's happening here. He knows what's happening. He knows what has happened up to this point to where he can stand in a place of judgment and justice over the city and be justified in it. But he cannot judge the righteous with the wicked. He cannot do it. He will not do it. We could go on and we could read the story, and I don't want to spend all, there's tons of stuff we would have to read, but the long, story, the long and the short of it is, is that Lot believes the angels. Lot goes to tell his family, hey, you need to come with me and this, these guys because God's going to destroy this. And the Bible says that he was to them as, and I like how like the King James, the New King James put it, he says he, they, he, Lot was to them as one that mocked, which meant they thought he was joking. They're like, yeah, sure, Lot. You know what God's going to do. I got you, finger guns, you know. They didn't believe a word that he said. Matter of fact, it goes on to say that the next morning when the, when the judgment was going to come upon the cities of the plains there, that Lot lingered. He drug his feet. He didn't even want to get out of the city. And it says that the angels had to grab him and his family by their hand and literally pull them out of the city. Now, here's the interesting thing about all and And... The fact of the matter is, is the minute they were out of the city, the, the fire from heaven fell, the Bible says, and consumed the city. When we look at the story, we see justice, but there's something we don't see. You know what we don't see? We don't see grace yet. We see mercy, but we don't see grace. God showed Lot mercy, but he didn't show him grace. The overall story of Sodom and Gomorrah is this, and this is one of the big things that we struggle with. Oftentimes we read the New Testament, and then we read the Old Testament, and sometimes we feel like we're dealing with two different gods. Don't, come on, be honest. You do, don't you? I mean, you see Sodom and Gomorrah, you're like, man, that was intense. You know what I mean? That's hardcore. I mean, don't, don't even get me started on the Amorites. Remember that? If you haven't read that story, that was a tough one, you know? I mean, and you get into this idea over into the, minor, the major prophets and the minor prophets, God is like literally sending other countries into Israel to completely enslave them. And we look, we're like, man, I would not want to live in Israel in those days. I, that was terrible. And then we get over into the New Testament, and we're like, oh, man, I see this like benevolent father type of a God. Who am I dealing with here? Have you ever felt like that before? Well, let me confuse you before hopefully we clear things up, all right? Hopefully. Maybe it'll make sense at the end. God's not changed. He's the exact same. Matter of fact, over in the book of Hebrews, it says, as he's speaking to those that stand outside of the covenant of grace, he says, our God is a consuming fire. That's what he is. That hasn't changed. Uh, speaks of Jesus Christ and says that he is the same today, Yesterday and forever has not changed. The same God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6, same one. Nothing about him is different. Everything about him is same. So what is it that's so gracious about justice? We all want justice, don't we? We all want it for somebody else. <laughs> we, we usually don't go to God and ask for justice, do we? Now David did. In the Psalms, many times, he went to God and he said, judge me 
according to your righteousness. He says that in the Psalms, judge me according to your righteousness. And that's only because David was like this new covenant believer trapped in the old covenant world kind of a guy. You can't pin David with that. You're like, he understood some things about what God intended in covenant that a lot of other people missed. Because who would pray such a thing? So when we read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the human condition wants justice. We want it. We crave it. When we don't see it happen, it gets, we get upset, don't we? We get mad. When we see an injustice, and we live in a world that knows nothing about justice. We live in a world and in a society that calls vengeance, spite, and revenge justice. They call tearing people down to build other people up justice. That is not justice. The only one that can execute true justice is God himself. He has the right to do anything that he pleases at any given moment and give no explanation to anyone for why he did so. I find it interesting that he even came to Abraham and told him why he, he was going to do. And we see God meeting out justice, but we don't see the grace just yet. So you're like, buddy, this, this message is terrible so far. I told you it was terrible. Just hang on, all right? <laughs> Maybe we'll make it, take it, bring it around full circle, all right? How do we deal with this tension then? This tension that God's just, that he's righteous, that he's holy, that he demands perfection, that everything about him is higher and bigger and more right than we can ever think about being and or doing. Well, the Bible tells us that when the fullness of time was come, that Christ was born of a woman, born under the law, to keep the law, that he might bring in and adopt sons. Now, hopefully I've set the stage well enough in our thinking. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 5 with me. Romans chapter number 5. You see, because I don't want you to see grace as some sort of firewall between God's justice and righteousness between you and him. That's not what it is. Uh, Grace is not like this fire extinguisher, uh, so to speak, or it's not some kind of blockade and where like there is just this sweeping tide of God's anger and you just in time to miss it. That's not what grace is. You see, grace doesn't hide you and I from God's justice. It invites us right into it. It says you can come in and you can live in the idea that God is just because only if you are operating with God on the basis of grace. Over in Romans chapter number 5 and verse number 12, again, I'm going to read quite a, a lengthy portion of Scripture here, okay? He says, Therefore... Just as through, and I'm reading out the New King James if you want to follow word for word on your phone and or your other devices, unless you have it memorized. Okay, Doug, I was was throwing that at you. Verse 12, therefore, just as though one man, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all of sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, here's something very important to take into consideration as we think of this idea of grace and justice. 
We might look at that and think to ourselves, now wait a minute, if there was no law, how could someone die? The fact of the matter is, is that sin brings forth death even if there's no law. It is the natural reoccurrence of sin to bring death. God didn't have to come along and say, here's Ten Commandments, this is what's killing you. It was still happening. He brought in the law, the Bible's going to tell us in a minute, so the offense that we were naturally committing would abound. God was showing, this is what's right. This is what the judge of all the earth will do and expect. And death reigned, regardless of whether the person knew that or not. Because notice what he says uh, in verse number 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not ascended according to the likelihood of the transgression of Adam. Which means this. A lot of times we think to ourselves, well, Adam ate of the fruit when he wasn't supposed to. I didn't eat of the fruit, so why am I condemned? That's a good question. You know why God condemns the entire world in one man? Because he is being gracious and he's being just. If he condemns the entire world in one man, you know what he can do through another singular man? He can justify everyone. He goes on and he says this in these verses. Uh, Look at verse number 15. He says, But the free gift is not like the offense, Adam's offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more through the grace of God and the gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, can abound unto many. And if the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, it's very wordy, isn't it? But you're enjoying that, right? You're like, buddy, I feel like you're talking to circles in me here. Let's look at verse 17. He says, For if the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. You say, buddy, what in the world does that have to do with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? What has to do with it is this, is that the God that demands justice did not just simply demand it on you without providing grace for you. Now, turn over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse, uh, verses number 20 and 21. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and verse 21. Now, this is the point of the sermon, just to show you so you don't think I'm making this up. This is the point of the sermon where, look, this is all I got right here. This is it. There's just, just a couple of words written down there. So hang on to your hats. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 21. How is God just and yet still gracious. One of the things that we accidentally think about grace is is that grace just simply overlooks the things that we've done that are wrong. And it's not true. You know what overlooks what we've done wrong? Not cheap. Who's ever heard the term cheap grace? You ever heard that before? Slippery grace or, or something like that. Greasy grace, that's the word. Greasy grace. Like if you believe in grace, you're just going to go out and run a muck, you know. You're just gonna, the first thing you're going to do is go rob the, the convenience store uh, that Alex and Dave live behind. I mean, that's the first thing you're going to do, you know. And uh, we think that you're just, that greasy grace mentality tells me one thing. You don't think grace is cheap. You think the law is cheap. You think that it's possible to actually keep all the law. That's what you think. You think that I can do it. I'm good. There's a part of it. There's a part of me that's good enough to keep a part of the law that's perfect. And I'm going to go after that thing. So what does God do? God, knowing that we're ignorant and helpless, what does he do? 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 21. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. I know I say that every time I speak, but there you go. 
It says, for he, I'm just going to read it with the actual proper names in it, okay? For God has made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse right there sums up exactly how God is just and God is still gracious. You see, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, why we see justice but we don't see grace is because God showed Lot mercy in getting him out. If he, would have shown, uh, if he would have shown Lot grace, he would have gotten him out. He would have multiplied his household. He would have blessed him just like he blessed Abraham, but he didn't do that. But you know who he did do it to? He did that to you. When a person comes to Christ, we don't just get simply God looking at us and saying, all right, you're good, I'm going to leave you alone now. We have a God that enters in and he says, I'm going to make you one of mine. I'm going to treat you like I'm, you're one of mine now. In verse number 21, there's, there's so much to unpack there, and we're not going to take a ton of time to do that this morning. But I heard one guy say, he came up, his pastor preached on this verse, and he came up to him and he asked him, he said, Pastor, can you please explain to me how God made Christ to be sin for us? And of course, you know, when you, you teach the Bible, you get these legitimate questions all the time, and let's, let's be honest with you, just most of the time you don't know the answer to them, you know. But Doug knows all the answers. So if you have a theological question, ask Doug, and this is what he gets for sitting on the second row because I keep shooting at him this morning. But he comes, up, he comes up to his pastor and he says, can you please explain to me how God made Jesus to be sin for me? He goes, I'll explain that when you explain how God made you to be righteous like Christ is. And it's one of those things where the explanation of it, we're looking to feel it, you know what I mean? And we do at times. We do in those moments where we, the truth catches up with our thinking and our thinking catches up with our emotion and everything is in line and we sense and we feel exactly what's true based on what God said. We, without the justice of God, grace means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. If God just simply overlooks, it's like uh, I read a little bit of excerpts, and I'm just going to throw it under the bus, so prepare yourself for it, okay? I read a few excerpts of a book a number of years ago called Love Wins, probably one of the worst things I've ever read in my life. Please don't read it. Uh, the theory of the book just simply being this is that, you know what, ultimately because God is love, God is not going to allow anyone to have to actually pun it, uh, experience an internal punishment for their sin. Eventually, he's going to let them on out and love is going to win. I'll tell you this, I don't want that kind of love. I don't want that kind of love because that's not the kind of love that Jesus displayed on the cross when God made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, you can go the rest of your life and live through one injustice after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next on this earth. But there's one injustice as a believer you'll never live through. And that's the fact that God will never look at you and treat you as if you're not his. He'll always treat you as your righteous. It's one of the big confusions about people that come in and out of church or one of the misconceptions they have about Christianity as a whole because they think that God is relating to people that say that they're Christians based on some sort of good activity that they're involved in. 
And they think that uh, God is relating to the, uh, a person that says they're a Christian because they go to church and they believe everything about the Bible and all the, these, this list of things that make a person a Christian. Well, it's like the old, old years gone by, evangelist Billy Sunday said, he said, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your driveway makes you a car. And so we, th- we, we have all these misconceptions about what it is to experience the grace of God. And the experience of the grace of God is understanding that God in his perfect justice did everything that should have happened to you to Christ. Justice is met, grace is given, and righteousness is the experience. Um, if, you don't, if you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, we want to help you with that. We can't make you be a believer. We can't give you the special words to say. There are no special words. Uh, you can pray till you're blue in the face. You can get baptized a thousand times. It doesn't matter. You can read the Bible from front to back and then back to front again if you're that good. I mean, you can give money. You can do whatever. You can give your life and still die outside of the, the saving grace of God because becoming a Christian isn't about what you do. It's about you believing what Christ has done for you is enough. It's an offense to our self-righteousness. Basically says that I have to give up what I think I'm good at to accept something that someone else has done perfectly. If you're not a believer, we want to help you with that this morning. Uh, Gabe and Kelly are going to be down front here in just a minute. And uh, if you need to talk with them, you come on up here. We're not going to pressure you. You don't have to fill out a card, none of that stuff. We're more interested in where you're at with Christ than we're worried about your email address. So let's have a word of prayer. All right, Father, thank you uh, so much for your goodness. Thank you for your justice, uh, and thank you for your grace that we might um, we might live in that, uh, experience it as a good thing. Uh, we're thankful that you're uh, you're good to us, that you stand uh, for us at all times, and that we stand with you. And Lord, we're thankful for how good you are to us in Jesus' name. Amen.